Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Definitely our sexuality is 100% shaped by our experiences growing up, social beliefs around us, around what our parents tell us. Um, and I think this, it seems like an obvious message, but it's such an important message because I can't tell you how many people suffer in silence thinking that there's something wrong with them or that they're broken sexually. And it is always a combination of you know, traumas, childhood experiences, familial beliefs, religious beliefs, all put together to affect their body's functioning. And I love the newest science on this that literally shows like, you know, women being turned on and saying they're not turned on at all. And when they look at the part of the brain that's involved, it's the part of the brain that's registering, uh, you know, social behavior and acceptability. And that part of the brain is saying it's not socially acceptable to be sexually turned on and to feel turned on. So even though their body is turned on, they're just not feeling it. And that goes so deep and it's so unexplored. And I see it all the time. Not being able to have an orgasm is so psychological, but people are so hard on themselves about it um, over and over again. I think trauma is an underlying silent, uh, destroyer of long-term relationships and marriages. And I'm not even talking the most overt trauma, you know, like a physical assault or sexual abuse, even though so many people have experienced that, but just the trauma of being told that sex is dirty, that you could burn in hell. If you are lustful, that you'll be a slut. If you, you know, sexually express yourself, um, even for men, men get the most conflicting messages. Like, I, I don't even know how men do it. They get told like, you should want to have sex with every Everything that moves if you are like a real sexual, you know, powerful man and to be, you know, a good husband and father and have an actual role in society, you need to only love your wife and only ever look at her and never, ever sleep with anyone else. Like, oh my God, like how does anyone function with those two social messages bearing down on their nervous system? It, it's kind of madness internally. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Layla, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Uh, so I was referred to you by way of Selena Sue, who has been a steady referral source for many, many amazing guests. Um, you know, some of the best conversations that I've had all year have come from people that she sent me. So I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, I want to start by asking you, um, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact uh, has that had on your life, your career and the choices that you've made? Okay, so I was a weirdo in high school. I um, went to Highlands Ranch High School, which was right next to Columbine High School in Colorado. And I was actually a freshman in the year that the Columbine massacre happened. And that touched me really deeply. I was 14 years old. And in high school, especially at that high school where I was at, it felt empty and hollow and clicky and mean. And I was very, very alone. I had, uh, well, I had two friends, but that felt very alone in a school where it was very important to be popular and connected. And we really uh, bonded through being strange. Like we drew pictures of squirrels and we ran around screaming and we, you know, already were flirting with the idea of, of being lesbians, which was like super radical uh, in, in the suburbs in Colorado. And it just impacted me so deeply, um, that shooting. And I decided to transfer out of district. So um, at the end of my freshman year, I transferred to Littleton High School and I also also felt very, very alone there, but it was almost like a breath of fresh air because nobody knew who I was. And that's really how I approached high school. I started taking college classes. Then my sophomore year, I was a year younger than everybody else. So I was 15 and I was really quite alone and sad. And I remember my senior year that I decided to flirt with being popular finally because I felt like high school was passing me by and I wasn't connecting with anyone. I was never sad when people graduated and went away to college from older years. And so I chose to become popular, to go to all the parties, all of that, just to see if I could. And I could, and it 
it felt like I was giving something away inside of me because I had a kind of poetic, visionary, like adventurous desire. I told my parents when I was 15 that I wanted to go to Asia. Um, and they said, look, if you get straight A's, you can go wherever you want in the summers. So I had already gone to Tibet, India, Nepal when I was 15. I went surfing by myself and backpacking around Costa Rica when I was 16. And I had this big vision of the world. And it felt like no one around me in high school got it, loved me for it, or understood me. And that just produced this tremendous sense of loneliness. And I thought maybe the answer was, you know, finally choosing to be connected to the popular crew to go to parties to do the whole thing. And even that didn't quite feel right to me. So I, one of the reasons I chose to go to Stanford was I really wanted to be around people who were like, I thought it was going to be like a Paris revolution in the sixties, like in a cafe with people just like on fire with ideas and in love with the world. And so I worked super hard, um, throughout high school. So I could go to a university where I felt people would be alive with ideas and knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, I think two things really shaped me from that experience into my career and what I'm doing now. The first was just, I really grew up with this sense that people weren't being authentic, that they weren't being true to themselves. And it was creating a kind of plastic disconnected reality. And I saw firsthand that that resulted in the Columbine shootings, like that it wasn't just people not being honest with themselves, that that went all the way to a really disconnected and even violent reality. So that developed a strong desire to point not only myself back to what's really going on inside, what am I really feeling? Let's really talk about it. Um, but a sense that that was a form of really deep service for people, not just a life choice, but something that needed to happen in society. And also, I would say it impacted for a long time my ability to actually own my gifts in the world because I was, I really didn't want to be lonely for my whole life. And so it took a long time for me to really allow myself to just say what I believed and put myself out there and build my YouTube channel. And I was so surprised when people loved me for who I was. Like that was, I think, one of the biggest shockers for me. I just felt like I was going to say what I believed in because it was really important to me. And I didn't think there'd be a whole community of people out there that really valued that. And it was so healing for me to feel the beauty and love and reflection of people who really appreciated me having a voice and talking about sexuality and things that can be socially taboo. And it actually, what was really surprising to me was that my, my work actually healed some of that high school pain of not belonging. Mm. Wow. Okay. So a, a lot of questions come from that. I'm, I'm really actually glad you brought up the, the topic of loneliness because it's something that I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, over the last couple of weeks uh, in particular, because I, I spent the better part of 60 days, you know, finishing up a manuscript only to, to wake up and, and realize I've feel incredibly socially isolated from the world over the last few days and realize that I have, you know, very little human contact. But um that sense of, of hollowness and loneliness, I mean, how do you how do you resolve it in adult life if you're feeling it now as opposed to, you know, when you're in high school? Yeah, well, I feel in some ways that I was lucky that I started traveling young and I left college for two years and lived in Thailand and in Bali. And I was living in these, you know, expat traveler communities where people spent all day, every day together doing adventures, like going out and exploring the jungles or doing a workshop together or doing a, a class together or just jumping in the ocean. And so I got early on that there was this kind of connectedness that was missing from modern society. And, you know, I've even cried sometimes when I've thought about uh, you know, tribal societies, not romanticizing them. Like I know that there's, there's plenty of, you know, downsides to that as well, but that sense of being with the same 40 to a hundred people for your entire life and living and dying by them and having every single day, like you being connected to them and them being connected to you, like you would not know loneliness and that experience and how the way we live our lives now is so radically different from that. And so I make a conscientious effort 
even in my 30s, to say to my friends, like, look, I don't want to do the modern day Western thing with you. I don't want to see you once a month. <laughs> like, I want you over here at my house as often as possible. And we're not just going to do the conventional thing of like, you know, going out and drinking every once in a while, like let's do breath work. Like let's have dance parties in the yard. Like let's go off to Joshua tree and spend a full weekend together. And let's do, you know, communication practices where we really talk about what we desire, what we're afraid of, what we love about each other. Like I make a conscientious effort to break down that kind of cool distance that most people have and really bond with the people in my life as you know, a way to end that sense of pervasive loneliness. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly interesting in, in a culture where, you know, we're so connected, we kind of try to use, you know, our connectedness digitally as a substitute for, you know, being together physically, which I, I've realized is, is so not viable. No, not at all. In fact, I, th I mean, I think there's even studies on this that makes people even more lonely. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's another thing that comes up for me that that is a strange sort of paradox. And I remember writing about this on Facebook once. You know, if you looked at any of the the research around sort of happiness and um, you know, uh, like well being, it says you know our social relationships and our, our relationships are one of the, the greatest predictors of, of long term happiness. And on the flip side of that, we have this whole idea that if we're dependent on anything external for our happiness, we're giving away you know uh, our happiness to something that is out of our control, like how you know an intimate partner might feel about it or a potential intimate partner might feel about it and i'm curious what you have to say about it and what your work has shown about this right so there is this you know it's a personal development sort of spiritual belief also a very western individualism belief that like i sh you know she'll choose happiness independent of my external reality and i think there is a certain layer of evolution and personal maturity where you can stop depending so heavily on your external reality for, you know, how you feel internally. But when it comes to what's natural for humans, like you can only go without food for so long and be happy. Like you can only go without water for so long and be happy. Like you can do your absolute best to be happy and, you know, isolated concrete with people being miserable around you, but it's unrealistic outside of what naturally supports a human being to think that you'd be happy. I think really when we say that we're kind of taking a baseline assumption that you have everything that you need to survive because nobody expects you to be happy if you're living in a, a war-torn environment or something like that. And I think one of the things that we really miss in our conversation is that social connection is just as important for us as food and water. Like it's not as imminently important, but it's just as important for a baseline level of joy and sustainability and contentment and that people don't focus on it enough. And so I would put it in the category, not of plus, like, you know, you can be happy with or without like an amazing wardrobe full of clothes. You can be happy with or without a fancy car, but I wouldn't say that you can be happy with or without people who truly deeply love you and those really meaningful conversations and a lifetime of connection with people that you care about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, funny enough, I, it's interesting you went to Stanford because I went to that other school across the bay, and um, I have very similar sentiments to what you did. I remember thinking this is going to be a place, Berkeley, full of like you know amazing writers and amazing conversations, and, and I walked away thinking, okay, half these people don't seem as culturally uh, profound as I once thought they would be when I got there. Uh, so I'm curious, what led you from Stanford to the work that you're doing today? Um, and also, what, if any, have been the major low points, and how did you pull out of them? Totally. So I had a similar experience at Stanford and I'm always afraid to admit it because I feel like people will be like, what a jerk for Like, you're so ungrateful. You got to go to a school like that. And you like looked around, you were like, those pe these people suck. Like, <laughs> and there was a part of me at that age that was let down. I, I didn't always, I, I often didn't feel like people cared the way that I cared. And some of that was me and, and some of that was them. Um, and so I, you know, I, I went for, I think two quarters of my, my first year and I just felt that I wasn't learning what it was that I deeply wanted to be able to truly make a difference in the world. And, you know, 
I kind of thought at the time I'd be a doctor. I kind of thought I'd uh, maybe be a biologist. I don't know, something like that. And I think it took me just a little bit of time studying that to really get the reality of it and be like, I'm not going to be happy in a lab and I'm not going to be happy in a hospital. I want to do something radical and transformative. And I always had a deep spiritual streak in me. Um, and so it was, you know, I'd already been to Asia and I just bought a one-way ticket to Thailand and went for the next two years. I was, I think 19, no, 18 at that time. And that's when I started, you know, doing yoga for the first time, going, you know, to India, exploring Indian spiritual traditions. I did my first 10-day Vipassana course, all of that. And I just remember feeling like these are the tools that create real transformation. And that's what I really want to offer. I don't know why I was so interested in sexuality so early. Everyone always asks me that. I was sexually abused uh, by my biological father. I think I probably would have been interested in sexuality with or without that. Um, but I was very, um, what's the right word? Just kind of wrecked around sexuality. Like I couldn't even go into a Victoria's Secret store. Like the idea of sexuality completely freaked me out. And I was so kind of wounded around it. And I had a very uh, powerful belief that we were being kind of massively lied to as a society around our, our sexuality, around what was possible, around um, the beauty that it holds around it being this amazing, incredible opportunity for personal development and transformation. How I knew that at like 18 years old, that's still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, but I started, you know, studying Tantra around that age and I focused on sexuality when I came back to Stanford after those two years off. And I remember just starkly feeling the difference between learning about sexuality, sitting in a chair, watching a PowerPoint presentation and learning about, you know, by STDs and pregnancy and, you know, the age at which people lose their virginity and the difference between that and, you know, what I got to experience in Asia and afterwards of, you know, embodied experiential learning of how breath work changes your experience of sex, of how, you know, a vagina massage can heal rapidly sexual trauma, things like that. And so I was very, very interested in combining the you know scientific rigor and connection to biology and psychology with this amazing tradition of tantra that was so out there in some ways and yet in my experience so what people were looking for sexually it was this antidote to numb checked out sex to not having sex at all to feeling you know i don't know just really warped by pornography and the mass media and all of that it was it were the there were these tools to pull you back into the body and bring you so into the experience and what i found was that you could use these sexuality tools to get higher than any drug would ever take you and i was like oh my god everyone's taking drugs to like end their loneliness and disconnection and they could just breathe into their genitals everyone needs to know this and um and so that kind of really set me on the journey. I think some of the lowest points were definitely, you know, getting caught up with horrible, twisted, dark gurus in very strange situations. I think some of the low points were healing my own sexual trauma and just what a long, painful, deep process that is. Man, I thought I could, you know, check that one off the list and like, six months and it took years and years and years of some of the deepest, hardest, most pervasive pain and trauma inside of my system and just watching myself contort into this person that I didn't even recognize because of these deep layers of trauma. That was incredibly, incredibly challenging. Um, just moments of living completely broke and feeling really misunderstood and almost feeling angry towards society that, you know, if I was choosing to be an engineer or a chemist and making bombs and algorithms and things like that, that did damage to society or making pharmaceutical drugs that I would get a kind of recognition from society. But because I was out doing, you know, this deep work in sexuality and spirituality, you know, it felt like I had very little recognition or appreciation from society and just a sense of how 
messed up that was and then making the choice to stop playing that victim and just do what I felt was really, really needed. And so all of that together just kind of eventually created a very clear path for me. I spent 10 years on and off in Asia sort of putting together the pieces and then finally decided to come home about four, four and a half years ago and, you know, make Tantra more accessible to people by taking away the unnecessary sort of esoteric stuff and just, you know, make it the simplest of practices that are the most rapidly transformational. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions come from that. Um, <laughs> one, one of the things that, that always amazes me is that, you know, I see people, um, especially people that I interview that, that seem to always experience post-traumatic growth as opposed to, to, you know, post-traumatic stress, even if they do have post-traumatic stress is usually followed by growth. And, and I'm curious, having had the experience of sexual abuse, I mean, you've took, you've taken that and, you know, uh, turned it into something very powerful. And I'm curious why that is. Like, why is it that some people respond that way? Uh, why are some people defined by experiences like yours and others are informed by them and uh, make something good of it? I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> if you found the person who has that answer, please let me know. Uh, you know, I think probably like most things, it's a combination of genetics and upbringing. My mom was raised in a really traumatic environment and she did always say to me, you know, you don't get to control what happens to you, but you always get to control the choices that you make and who you decide to become. And I'm sure that impacted and influenced how I approached my own trauma experiences growing up. And yeah, I don't know. There's something I, I do know in my darkest moments of sexual trauma. And I think probably one of the deepest fears about having trauma is that it will just never go away. Like it will just never actually get better. It will always be this sort of warped kind of destructive part of me. That was my really profound fear. And I've come across that a lot on other people facing trauma and carrying that fear. Sometimes it, one of the things that would really help me through it was just this sense of like, if I can figure out how to do this, like if I can transform this layer, I can go tell so many people that it's possible. And if it doesn't work, at least I will die knowing that I gave it my absolute best shot. And I don't know that there's anything else that I can do, but why I had that approach and that mindset, I, I really don't know. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. Wow. Well, one of the things that I want, I want to ask you about is, um, you know, you mentioned pornography and then sort of the, the narratives that we have around sex. And, and one, you know, several questions come from this. You know, one, why is it such a sort of taboo subject in our culture? I mean, I grew up in an Indian community and, um, you know, I remember having this conversation with uh, Liz Dialto and I said, you know, I've seen my parents kiss each other like once. And I remember just being like, oh, like, I wish I could unsee that because it was just something I'd never seen in the culture. So, uh, you know, one, you know, where do our narratives come from? How does that inform how we relate? And two, how is it different across cultures um, in the work and, and the people that you've worked with that you've seen? Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely our sexuality is 100% shaped by our experiences growing up, social beliefs around us, around what our parents tell us. Um, and I think this, it seems like an obvious message, but it's such an important message because I can't tell you how many people suffer in silence thinking that there's something wrong with them or that they're broken sexually. And it is always a combination of, you know, traumas, childhood experiences, familial beliefs, religious beliefs, all put together to affect their body's functioning. And I love the newest science on this that literally shows like, you know, women being turned on and saying they're not turned on at all. And when they look at the part of the brain that's involved, it's the part of the brain that's registering, uh, you know, social behavior and acceptability. And that part of the brain is saying it's not socially acceptable to be sexually turned on and to feel turned on. So even though their body is turned on, they're just not feeling it. And that goes so deep and it's so unexplored. And I see it all the time. Not being able to have an orgasm is so psychological, but people are so hard on themselves about it um, over and over again. I think trauma is an underlying silent uh, destroyer of long-term relationships and marriages. And I'm not even talking the most overt trauma, you know, like a physical assault or sexual abuse, even though so many people have experienced that, but just the trauma of being told that sex is dirty, that you could burn in hell if you are lustful, that you'll be a slut if you, you know, sexually express yourself. Um, even for men, men get the most conflicting messages. Like, I, I don't even know how men do it. They get told, like, you should want to have sex with everything that moves if you are like a real sexual, you know, powerful man. And to be, you know, a good husband and father and have an actual role in society, you need to only love your wife and only ever look at her and never, ever sleep with anyone else. Like, oh, my God, like, how does anyone function with those two social messages bearing down on their nervous system? It, it's kind of madness internally. Mm -hmm. So all of that creates this kind of crazy society that we're seeing. And I see people really not understand how much that impacts them. And one of the things that is always, always blowing my mind is that it's 2017 and it's still such a taboo topic. Like there's so many organizations that are terrified of talking about it. There's so many people that are scared to host a conversation about sexuality because of what they think their audience might think. And it really is that deep, deep, deep social conditioning that sex it's not something that you talk about it's not something you go public with it's not something like you can't be a sexual being and a socially respectable being like that goes so deep in so many people's you know 
operating systems that it's very, very hard for people to publicly talk about it, to publicly speak about it. And one of the things I think reasons I think it's so important is like, to me, we have a sexual health epidemic that people aren't talking about. We've got porn addiction, we've got sexual dysfunction, we've got, you know, people just not having sex in their long term marriages, we have sexual trauma, sexual abuse, rape society, you know, sexual harassment is just the tip of the iceberg. And we're finally having that conversation in society right here, right now. But what's happening is just, you know, yes, we have a, an obesity epidemic, but we have a real model of health. So we have people all around. We have a huge industry of people saying, you know, this is how to eat healthy. This is how to exercise. This is how to take care of yourself. That industry does not exist in sexuality. We do not have healthy models of sexuality. We do not have people having the conversation and modeling what it looks like to be a sexually healthy and alive and integrated being. And not only that, but we actively suppress that conversation in society. You can't talk about that and run an ad on Facebook. You can't talk about that and have a career on CNN. Like it's it's crazy how much that conversation is still being suppressed and how much it's needed for not just for people to have awesome sexuality, which I think is valuable in and of itself. I think people having amazing orgasms is so needed, but to actually heal this shadow in society, it's absolutely required. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back to this, but I mean, I realized I forgot to ask you one other question. I wanted to ask um, about what the relationship with your father has turned out like in the rest of your life. Well, my biological father, um, I saw him once after I was seven. And um, once again, when I, I saw him when I was 13, and I called him when I was 17 and told him that I, I was legally changing my, my name and uh, whatever that's called when you change who is your legal parent um, to my stepfather. And that was the last time I ever talked to him. And he died of a heart attack a couple months later um, on a golf course, just like dropped dead. So that was that was that. And that took a long, long time to to integrate and heal that pain. And I did have the benefit of, of a healthy role model of a stepfather. And in some ways, I think that helped accelerate my ability to heal in some ways and to have mm, the self-love. To, to do all of that healing work. And then that stepfather actually passed away about a month ago. So it's been, it's been a big time for, for fatherhood and, and relationship to dad up in my life. Hmm. Wow. Um, so two questions come from, you know, everything you said about sexuality. One is looking at it across different cultures. Um, if you've worked with people, you know, across different ethnicities and, and you know, how that's differed for them. Uh, I'm really curious about that. And two, what is the relationship that you have found between sex and self-worth? Right. Okay. Great questions. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So across different cultures, it's, it's hard to describe. I can feel it, right? Like I have, I have a number of Indian women who do my sexuality courses in India. Uh -huh. So they're, you know, really in that culture still. And there's a different quality of heaviness to that cultural conditioning. It's a different kind of conditioning, like for them to even touch their vulva is such a massive, huge step. And I, really try and support them every step of the way, you know, cause they're comparing themselves to all these women everywhere, you know, women in Germany, women in the United States, women in Australia. Um, and they're comparing their progress or their ability to relate to their own body and their own sexuality to these, you know, global women who have very different experiences growing up. And so I always try and really support people from diverse cultures and cultures that I know carry a particularly heavy sexual stigma and conditioning to understand the amount of courage and the amount of shift that they're creating in their own culture and how powerful that really is. And what always blows me away is that there are people who do that, that there are women who literally, you know, in Bangalore, like join O Bliss or do a jade egg practice and create that kind of transformation. And it just, it touches me so deeply. I have women right now from Saudi Arabia 
um, that do these courses. And what is always so mind blowing to me in Saudi Arabia, it they are so on the streak of empowerment right now. Like there are women even doing my year long certification training and wanting to open centers for women in Saudi Arabia and saying like, I want to speak to the women in my country and tell them that their sexuality is beautiful and that they deserve to claim their bodies. It really feels like a worldwide movement right now. And based on, you know, I I can really feel that for a woman in Holland, a woman in Sweden, a woman in Germany, it's an easier time transforming their sexuality because they don't have the heavy religious and cultural oppression to the same degree that other culture, you know, Saudi Arabia, for instance, India, for instance, there's just a heavier cultural conditioning. And in the United States, I see it. I work with women who grew up in religious cults who are still living in small towns where it is heavily, heavily Christian and dogmatic, and they get called sluts and whores and things like that for even doing my programs. So that cultural oppression and and repression and conditioning makes such a huge difference and women still say yes to it anyways which I find mind-blowing and what's crazy is it is challenging and hard enough I'm always still so touched by the fact that even for you know I live in Venice Beach the most liberal open-minded women who grew up with you know reasonably sexually liberal families they still have a hard time dropping into their sexuality, owning it, claiming it, because there's so much in there from thousands of years to unpack and to heal and to integrate. What about men in, in these different cultures? Men, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I do work with men, um, less so since I've gone online. I do have a men's course and I have uh, a couple's course. Um, and it really... You know, it really depends. One of the things I see around the world is that men are interested in becoming better lovers. And that really touches me. (laughs) Like that seems to be the motivation for a lot of men is like, I want to be the best possible lover I can be. And I actually see that as kind of a global thing. Interestingly enough, um, there's definitely differences in how they relate to sex and and definitely to women that are very, very, very profound. And I'm seeing kind of the leading edge, mostly in the United States, uh, to some degree in Europe, of men saying, you know, I want equality in my relationship. I want to see my, you know, if they're straight, I want to see my female partner as being empowered and I want to celebrate her sexuality. And I want to, I want for us to have the most outstanding epic sexual experience possible. I see that in certain corners and then there's, you know, I don't really work with the men that aren't saying yes to that right now. So I don't feel like I have the best spectrum of understanding of what's going on for men necessarily because the ones that aren't there yet don't really talk to me or interact with this work yeah okay so that raises uh, a couple of questions one i, I want to talk about the the relationship between sex and self-worth what you found that to be um you mentioned porn addiction and i'm curious what negative impacts that is having and then finally i want to look at you know how what is the practical application of all of this in our lives whether we're intimately involved with somebody or not so like three questions in one i realize okay (laughs) so wait what was the first question the relationship between sex and self-worth the relationship between sex and self-worth Yes. Okay. So this is such like, thank you for asking this question. Very few people ever make this connection. In my experience, self-worth is something that happens naturally when your nervous system is fully integrated and online. So that maybe sounds a little bit abstract, but like if you look at animals and babies who haven't, you know, experienced trauma, there is just this natural endogenous self-worth. Like you don't see an animal in nature that doesn't have self-worth. You don't see, you know, babies or little children that have healthy environments that don't have self-worth. It's like they have just a healthy, naturally operating nervous system. What happens that detracts from self-worth is when People start shutting down various parts of themselves, disconnecting from various parts of themselves. They're literally no longer whole 
on a nervous system level. And they're often operating from, you know, rejecting huge pieces of themselves, judging huge pieces of themselves. They no longer have this integrated way of being. And that creates, in my experience, that's like the underlying mechanism that creates a sense of not being worthy is this lack of literally internal wholeness. And what happens with sexuality, it happens with men, it definitely happens across the board with women, is this disconnection from their vagina, like literally from their pelvic region. There's a sense of like, I don't know what's going on down there, or I judge it, I think it's ugly, I think it smells, I don't know anything about that area. It literally disconnects them fundamentally, neuronally. Like we have so many important nerves running into the pelvis, running into um, all of our genitals. And so many people have, you know, their cultural conditioning, their religious oppression, just growing up in a sex negative society. They literally shut down those parts of themselves and it creates a sense that there's something wrong with them, which contributes to a sense of unworthiness. So what I see is when people put the pieces back together literally like I love my cock like I am so connected to it and it's connected to my heart it's connected to my wisdom I am operating as this integrated being with my full sexuality that is reconnecting the wholeness of the nervous system which then results in a sense of deep worthiness and so for the people who are the most sort of abused and men can experience heavy abuse and repression as well. As they put the sexual pieces back together, it's literally like their nervous system comes fully back online. And that creates this endogenous sense of worthiness. It's it's so beautiful to see and have happen. And it happens with men a lot that they, like most men don't, most good men don't don't feel good about a lot of the pornography that they're watching. And I don't think that that guilt is helpful. I think there's a place for healthy pornography in society, but the way pornography is done, the, you know, how most people in the porn industry are actually feeling about their bodies or not feeling all of that contributes to a kind of vibe around it that I think is challenging and disquieting to men who really care about women, who really care about humanity. And that ends up this disconnection and sort of habitual masturbation and numbness that can result from just not having focus and awareness and connection in their sexuality. That level of disconnection I find also creates an unworthiness and for men a sense that they don't know how to fulfill their partners sexually also often creates an unworthiness so I find when men do the work to reintegrate their sexuality and they really it's like combining meditation and their sexuality at the same time there's such an experience of power in that that gives this sense of worthiness without having to compare themselves to anyone else. It's, it's such a deep connection that I see all the time. And I'm so excited for science to, to catch up with the actual research on it. So this raises one other question. So, you know, one, um, I was having a conversation with a, a dating coach and said, you know, like as a society, like, you know, because of our biology, you know, men often connect their self-worth to like how sexually active they are. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious, you know, what is, what do you have to say about that? Like, you know, it, that's just something that's been on my mind. Definitely. So I think men connect their self-worth to how sexually active they are and also to how good they perceive themselves to be as lovers. Mm. So there's also, you know, something that's really happened since the 80s is we've really put on men like, you know, your lover better have had like four orgasms for you to be able to feel worthy as a man. And there's something about that, again, that is, you know, a projection of worth onto external factors versus like the endogenous worth that I'm talking about is a natural worthiness that seems to happen just from the expression of being alive. Like it's a very natural sense of worthiness that again, like healthy children have, like healthy children don't have a sense of worthiness because they have so many toys or because, you know, other children are telling them that they're amazing or whatever. It's a natural state of the nervous system. And so I really try and work with the men that I do work with to getting them back to a state of valuing their sexuality as it 
as it naturally exists in their body without any kind of sense of needing to have like, you know, 10 lovers or, you know, having had sex with so many women or what their lover is doing. It's literally an inner, like it's an emotional inner state that men can cultivate sexually that I really think helps them get out of that chasing game. Mm -hmm. And then ironically, it does make them more attractive to more people and better lovers. So it kind of, I think it ends up working out really well, even in that sort of external game. Okay. So I, I guess the, the question that will come from all of that to anybody listening is how, um, and just practical application of, of what you and I have talked about in our lives. Yes. So I tend to work with four foundational tools. Um, the first is focus, uh, or a type of meditation sexually. So most people don't realize it, but when most people go to actually have sex or masturbate, they tend to go into fantasy or to thoughts. So they're actually moving up and out of their body. And so a big part of the training is moving focus back down into your genitals. So back down into what you're feeling and your penis or your testicles back down into what you're feeling inside of your vagina and maintaining that focus as a natural state throughout the sexual experience. It also amplifies sensation. So a huge thing that's happening with pornography, with masturbation, um, and with women is this disconnection from our sexual sensitivity. And so when you learn to focus back down into your sensations, it creates a richer sensational reality that's really, really powerful. So essentially meditation tools combined with the sexual experience is really, really huge. Breath work is massive. So a big thing that's happening for most people sexually is they stay in cortical control, which means that for a lot of men, they are basing their sexual worthiness on their the experience of their partner. And so for a lot of men sexually, the sexual experience is a lot about trying to control, making sure that they last long enough, they keep their heart on, they ejaculate at just the right moment, and that their partner has a kind of experience that they're looking for. And this is in like the best case scenarios, but that's a lot of control around the sexual experience. For women, it tends to be more about worrying about, you know, am I loved? Am I desired? Am I good enough? Am I going to have an orgasm? Am I feeling enough? All of this. All of that puts you into the thinking part of your mind. And it is actually extremely hard to have a full sexual experience, especially for women, but for men as well, if the thinking part of your mind is completely active. So to go into a deeply orgasmic or ecstatic pleasure filled state, the cortical control of your mind has to go down. And so breath work can continual breath work throughout the sexual experience is actually one of the fastest ways I've found to take down that cortical control. So what that means is doing slow, full, deep breathing. In the more advanced stages, you can actually do connected breathing, which means that there's no pause between inhale and exhale or exhale and inhale while you're masturbating or while you're making love. That tends to take you out of this kind of controlled sexual state into a more ecstatic, wild, uninhibited state, which even though people fear that is actually usually their greatest desire. Like when we think of our greatest sexual experiences, they have a quality of ecstasy and wildness and like being unleashed sort of and still being very connected. And so learning to combine breath work with, with sex is one of the fastest ways. Um, I also do, you know, basic strength training. Um, the health of the pelvic floor is very, very important for being able to have sexual control, also sexual pleasure, an increase in sexual sensations and sensitivity. And finally, sound is a really unexplored, but very, very powerful way to access full bodied orgasmic states, also to release. So for a lot of women, sex, like a fuller sexual experience is much more emotional. And a lot of women repress their like tears that will come naturally during sex, anger that will come naturally during sex, a kind of healing from feeling fear or feeling shame or guilt that they've acquired along their sexual conditioning that wants to come up and be healed and resolved sexually. And a lot of that can actually be done by sounding um, in a really powerful way. So I work a lot with this, okay, like, um, acceptance of sound and allowing of sound for men as well. A lot of men are very, very quiet sexually. And the biggest key, a lot of men are really interested in ejaculation control and being able to last really long. Sound is one of the f- biggest keys to being able to last much longer 
while feeling a tremendous amount of pleasure and turn on inside of their bodies for men. So really working with sound is a big piece as well. Wow. And this is relevant whether you're single or in a couple? Yes. So the best way to actually train is sing, is is solo. So, you know, if you try and like start breathing and sounding and all of this while you're with a partner, it's like really overwhelming and probably brings up a lot of self-consciousness. There's so many other factors involved. If you do this training solo, you get really good at it. It's like you're able to master it. And then when you meet with a partner, these techniques come much more naturally. So it's better to master them alone and then use them with a partner. What um, what has been the impact on other areas of people's lives as a result of this? Oh, man, it's amazing. So I get letters all the time. Um, people go off of antidepressants. Like, that's not something I tell them to do. I'm not a doctor. I'm not pushing that at all. But they literally, like, I have so many reports and messages of, like, oh, my God, I actually got to such a place of loving myself and feeling good in my body that I did not have to take antidepressants anymore. That is always so moving to me. Um, so many people just talk about how they have not been able to feel sexually in their entire lives. Um, due to a trauma or an assault that happened and like literally recovering full sexual sensitivity. I love, I have so many um, people in their fifties that write me where they're like, I had just written off my sexuality for life. It was never going to be that amazing. And like, Oh my God, I'm having cervical orgasms or like men being like, I'm having these multi-orgasmic states. It's so profound. Um, a sense of like people often do talk about an end of loneliness. They, they finally learn how to forge this deep connection inside themselves and then they can they can literally do that with other people and that makes such a huge powerful difference to people and just a, a basic sense of aliveness i'd say that's the biggest thing that people get is like they're kind of looking for this way to feel literally turned on in life and you know uh, sensitized to their feelings, to the meaning of what's happening, to having a sense of, you know, a greater purpose and a greater connection. And this kind of sexuality work literally creates that in people. I think because it's such to repress our sexuality takes such a repression of the nervous system and to unrepress and awaken sexuality literally wakes up the nervous system in such a powerful way that people feel restored to life often. Mm. Wow. Well, I think that makes a, a really beautiful end to our conversation. So I want to have uh, ask you one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable? <laughs> I feel it's a, it's a quality. It's, it's like the Greek, uh, the original meaning for beauty was for something to be in itself completely. Like it just was itself. And I feel like that's what makes people unmistakable is that cortical control that I was talking about when people are able to take that off and really let their true brilliance, their true sexuality, their true genius kind of fly through in this uh, unfiltered way. I think that really brings the quality of, of unmistakableness to people. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, as I said, this has been phenomenal. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, so you can go to my website, which is laylamartin.com. Um, if you sign up, I make weekly videos uh, with these practical trainings that I'm talking about around sexuality. And I also have books for couples and women. And you can check out my YouTube channel as well, uh, which has all of these different, like a whole library of videos and trainings around uh, everything we've talked about here. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.